America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation that one helps, hopes will have a great uh, new start to our politics. Uh, starting on, how about January 1st? which is coming up. I think it's uh, too much to hope that uh, there's a new start in politics since the uh, Christmas uh, holiday, before the Christmas holiday. Uh, There's a piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal uh, by Gerald Seib, who was a longtime Washington bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. And the headline for the piece is, Let's Just Say It, Politics in 2023 was pretty awful. And he goes through a, a list of horribles. Uh, David French is somebody who writes about this politics with deep meaning, passion, and insight. He has uh, long been a distinguished attorney, specializing frequently in his career in defending religious liberties in this country. Uh, He is now an opinion columnist for the New York Times. You can also sign up for his weekly newsletter, which is always full of uh, content and meaning. Uh, David French, do you agree with the summary that politics in 2023 was pretty awful? (laughs) You know what? I think, Michael, that statement is one statement that can bring Americans together. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that's what we're doing. That's what that's what we're yeah. working on doing. So what what do we need? I mean, one of the things that you write about uh, and it's it's actually a mind changing column is the need to try to clean up at least one danger in politics, which is the Insurrection Act. And yes. why is the Insurrection Act, which has been on the books since the 1790s, I believe. Yeah, in various uh, why versions. Why is it so dangerous? Yeah, the, the version of the Insurrection Act that has really existed since the post-Civil War era uh, essentially allows, well, not essentially, does allow the president on his own initiative and based on his own subjective judgment to call out the active duty military or the National Guard, so 101st Airborne or, say, a state National Guard, to impose order in American towns, cities, and communities. And it's one of those uh, laws that was written at a time and in a place where the majority of Congress uh, was matching, you know, it was a Republican Congress with a Republican president. They trusted the power, they trusted the president, they trusted the presidency. Uh, and had a real need, for example, in the post-Civil War era to suppress some of the uh, insurrectionist activities in the defeated South. And so this Congress, more than 100 years ago, uh, wrote a blank check to the president. And now, to be clear, it's a blank check that the presidents in recent American history have not really tried to cash. <laughs> um Presidents have not, in fact, used all the power given to them by the Insurrection Act. And the most recent invocation of it is with the L.A. riots, but that was at the request of state officials in California asking George H.W. Bush to activate troops to intervene. But but what happens when a president isn't responsible? What happens if a president isn't respectful 
of a uh, of of the Constitution. Well, this act is still standing out there and allows him to call out the troops on his own initiative at his own discretion, and that's extraordinarily dangerous. Okay, right now, I believe that uh, the two of the front-running candidates on the GOP side for the presidential nomination, both President Trump and Governor DeSantis, have talked about uh, assigning federal troops to deal with, uh, with border security and uh, the immigration mess at the border. Uh, is there a danger, and if so, what is it, of using the Insurrection Act for that purpose? Well, the devil would be in the details. Um, so what kind of authority would they be given? What kind of scope? Um, where would they be operating? Also, you know, in many ways, you'd be activating troops who are trained for military missions for what is an essentially not a military mission. So it's a mismatch between mission and training. At the same time, also, that he has talked about invoking, and his allies in particular have talked about invoking the act, if they begin to see protests breaking out in the event that he wins the election. And so sort of, I think, believe that there is a sense of regret that the Insurrection Act was not used, for example, in 2020. And so Trump, who will who is pledged to have a very different team around him if he wins in 2024, may find himself surrounded by people who will indulge rather than resist some of his worst impulses. And so that is a a real danger here as well. Um, active duty troops are trained for specific kinds of missions. And if you tend, if you want to deploy troops for missions they're not trained for, then you're beginning to ask for real problems. And you say that as a veteran of uh, the United States Army, where you served in the Judge Advocate General's Corps in, uh, in Iraq uh, at the yes. height of the surge back in 2007. In terms of right now uh, looking ahead toward the uh, political constellation there's a, a, something close to panic that you can hear uh, from uh, the democratic side uh, do you think they are correct to um, take very seriously the polling that now shows not just uh, Trump beating Biden but uh, Nikki Haley uh, beats Biden by in almost every poll uh, by a, a bigger margin. And do you think that uh, this is uh, looking very grim for Joe Biden? I, I don't know how you could be a Democrat and not be concerned right now. Um, it's not an outlier poll that puts Trump ahead of Biden. It's almost every recent poll. It's not outlier polls that put Haley substantially ahead of Biden. It's virtually every poll. And look, the Democrats are in a bind. You know, our parties right now, Michael, as you know, are very weak. It's not like the Democratic Party can say to Biden, don't run. And so he if but if he continues to decide to run, a primary challenge becomes very, very dangerous for the Democrats chance of winning the presidency. Because remember, you know, we have a lot of recent history as primary challenges against sitting presidents. And in all of those major primary challenges, the sitting president a, won the primary challenge, but then B, lost the election. So Ford in 76, uh, Carter in 80, 
Bush in 92, all of them had major primary challenges and their party ultimately lost the election. So ideally for the Democrats, Biden would choose not to run. Uh, well, he would have to because it's getting we are less than a month away, yes. my friend, from the Iowa yes. caucuses. And uh, yes. again, it's uh, how would you describe your emotional reaction to the upcoming election? Um, let me put it this way. Uh, I am more alarmed about the possibility about the potential consequences of this election than any election uh, in my lifetime. Uh, As I've told people, I think it is the first election where I can say I'm not 100 percent sure that the country will survive it intact. And the reason why I say that is related to January 6th, because had Trump gotten his way, in other words, had Mike Pence said yes to the Trump scheme as opposed to having the integrity to uphold the Constitution, we could easily imagine a crisis, a constitutional crisis unlike anything we've seen since 1861 as two different people were sworn in to be president. Um, and so I am very concerned about what could happen in 2024. David French, uh, his most recent columns are linked at our website at michaelmedved.com. The Mexican president has reacted now to that uh, new rule in Texas, allowing state law enforcement to arrest suspected illegal migrants. We'll talk about it coming up on The Medved Show. Okay, there's a new report concerning January 6th, uh, which uh, is uh, truly extraordinary, and it's being covered everywhere. And I think it's important that people come to terms with it. Uh, The uh, coverage uh, declares that the pro-Trump organization, uh, which was Women for America First, applied for a January 6th demonstration permit, and they needed to do that. When you're having a mass gathering like that on the ellipse, as President Trump did that he spoke to, uh, you have to get a permit and because it's the National Park Service, it's federal land. So they did. They uh, got a permit for their demonstration on January 6th, but uh, the story now says that they purposely misled authorities about their intentions that day, according to a new report from a government watchdog. Representatives of Women for America First told the National Park Service that they did not intend, not intend, no way, will never do that, to walk from their planned demonstration on the ellipse near the White House over to the Capitol building on January 6th, despite evidence that they expected then-President Donald Trump to call for a march, which he did, according to the 47-page report from the Interior Department's Office of Inspector General. The group intentionally failed to disclose information to the National Park Service regarding the knowledge of a post-demonstration march. According to text messages cited in the report, a representative from the group, that's Women for America First, 
told a potential rally speaker that, quote, Trump is going to have us march there, the Capitol, and said that information should stay only between us. Trump addressed his supporters that day from the Ellipse, and people close to the former president said that he also wanted to go to the Capitol. He said that he would be in his speech, according to the House uh, January 6th committee's report. If you can also not get out about the march, because I will be in trouble with the National Park Service and all the agencies, but POTUS, the President of the United States, is going to just call for it unexpectedly. The text from the uh, group's representative to the potential speaker continued, uh, which uh, did not name the Women for America representative. Uh, now, what what does all this have to deal with? It helps to explain why there was no official preparation for uh, guarding the the Capitol building. Because the National Park Service and the authorities had all been informed there would be no march to the Capitol building. So that was something that they had been planning, but deliberately keeping secret. Most large demonstrations in areas administered by the National Park Service, such as the National Mall, require a permit and ask the applicant to provide information about proposed routes for any marches. Women for America First did not mention a march in its application at all, and that affected how the National Park Service prepared for the event, according to the report. Obviously, the National Park Service was not well prepared. A Senate report published in June found that federal agencies failed to assess and disseminate intelligence about the potential for violence that day. Uh, more than 1,200 defendants have been charged in connection with the January 6th attack on the Capitol, according to the Justice Department. More than 700 people have pleaded guilty to federal charges, and 138 people were found guilty at contested trials, according to uh, the figures from the Department of Justice. Now, what all of this means is it sets up uh, what is going to be the first major federal felony trial involving uh, Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, and President Trump. And one of the points about that trial, if it goes forward as scheduled, uh, it's going to be right in the middle of the election season, and Trump is going to be required to... Uh, be in court uh, every day for a while. So people who have the simple response that no legal proceeding against Trump can possibly hurt him because he turns them all into applause lines in his speeches. And he does, and he's done that very effectively. But uh, this matter of uh, the march to the Capitol building uh, and the fact that it was planned in advance but hidden, uh, that may be a factor in, in this particular case. The um, 
Mexico City deadline from Reuters, the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he's the outgoing president. He's term limited. Uh, he said today that his government was preparing to challenge a new Texas law allowing state law enforcement to arrest suspected migrants, which he called inhumane. On Monday, yesterday, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, signed the law giving local officers powers long delegated to the U.S. government. Migrants who enter the United States illegally can already be charged with illegal entry or reentry under federal laws, but the governor of the border state has criticized what he calls uh, U.S. President Joe Biden's failure to enforce them. This will be challenged immediately, and if you recall, back in 2012, there was an Arizona law that gave similar powers to law enforcement in Arizona. It eventually went to the Supreme Court and they said, no, this is not a job for local authorities. There are federal authorities who have to take care of uh, dealing with unauthorized immigrants. And uh, the question of the constitutionality of uh, this particular provision, it's uh, already uh, inspired some opposition. U.S. Representative Joaquin Castro, Democrat of San Antonio, sent a letter uh, that is signed by other Democratic members of Congress asking the U.S. Department of Justice to sue Texas to stop the law from taking effect. We urge you to assert your authority over federal immigration and foreign policy and pursue legal action as appropriate to stop this unconstitutional and dangerous legislation from going into effect. When you speak about dangers in the United States, one of the major dangers that uh, we seem to be facing with our young people has to do with uh, smartphones and tablets and uh, other means of distraction that uh, involves schools and child rearing and a potential American crisis. We'll be speaking to uh, someone who has been very deeply involved in this danger and this analysis coming up on the Medved Show. God help me, I'm addicted to the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, it is a pleasure to welcome to the program Andrew McDiarmid, who is a director of podcasting and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. He is also a contributing writer to Mind Matters AI. He produces ID the Future, a podcast from the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute that presents the case, uh, research, and implications of intelligent design and explores the debate over evolution. He's also been deeply concerned with the impact of smartphone usage among kids and the growing push for limiting and even banning smartphones and tablets for our children. Uh, first of all, what is the connection between 
smartphones and social media and the current mental health crisis that so many people have written about and become alarmed about facing American youth? Yeah, good question. And thanks for having me, Michael. Um, so basically, you know, this goes back to 15 years ago and more. Uh, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act came out in 2000. And at that time, the number 13, the age 13, was arbitrarily chosen. Uh, and this was four years before Facebook, 11 years before Snapchat, 16 years before TikTok. But 13 was chosen. The original sponsor uh, of the bill wanted the age of 16, but he was thwarted by tech companies and civil liberties groups. So they went with 13. Uh, I guess they really didn't uh, think about it enough or know any better. And here we are, you know, uh, thir 23 years later, and we can see the results of this, Michael, and it's really not pretty. We are in the middle of a mental health crisis uh, amongst adolescents. Our teenagers are really struggling with the use of these, these digital products, smartphones, and everything that comes with smartphones. And, you know, Jean Twenge, she has written books on this and has really tracked the rise of the mental health issues like depression, self-harm, and suicide among U.S. adolescents and young adults. And it really began in, around, in and around the year 2010, you know, when, when the first smartphone was out for a few years. Uh, Facebook was kicking things into high gear. Twitter was on the scene. And kids started to wrestle with how to use this to cope with this. Uh, and that's really where we see the disruption of in-person social interactions amongst kids, the interference with sleep time and, and the quality of sleep, the cyberbullying really kicking into high gear, the toxic online environments. And, um, and as we can talk about um, later, you know, kids are uniquely vulnerable to these behaviors coming into play. And again, as we'll talk about, the technology companies, they've known what they're doing and they're producing this this addictive content with addictive technologies, and we have to stand up and we have to stop it. Okay, let's let's talk about this a little bit further. And and by the way, we've had Gene uh, Twangy, who's a professor at San Diego State University and has been really prophetic on this issue for many years. She's been a guest on this show many times, and okay. uh, be, because this is a uh, a, a very serious matter. If you can explain to people, and I'm sure you can, how would, for instance, on issues like you mentioned, depression and suicide and self-harm, uh, eating disorders have been related to this use of uh, social media. How would that work with a given child, say a 15-year-old, who uh, would be more sensitive to that experience of depression and uh, self-destructive behavior uh, because of a deep exposure to social media? How would that work particularly? Right. Well, you know, a 15-year-old, you know, we, we understand that the brains of youth are not fully developed until their early 20s. And they're being handed this device that is is all kinds of mature uh, connection with all kinds of people, uh, both inner and outer circle. And it's not just the maturity of the connection, but also the addictiveness of the platforms. You know, the endless scrolling, the algorithm suggesting before you can think of it, what to do next. 
And, I, you know, a 15-year-old just cannot handle it. And if the 15-year-old is a girl, it's even worse because you have body image issues. Um, and when you throw in the idea that, that the producer of Instagram, Facebook, right, Meta, they knew that this was really, really causing, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds to struggle with their body image to make themselves feel worse about who they were uh, after sessions on Instagram. When you when you throw that in, it just it just becomes all the darker. Um, but you know, as to your question, you know, a 15 year old just cannot handle it. And I, I go back to the fact that the teens are uniquely vulnerable. You know, adults, you know, over 18 and you know, 20s and 30s. Okay, we we have experience. We do. We have built up some of that that willpower to say no to things that even are addicting. But te- teenagers struggle with that. That's sort of part of the genetic genetic makeup of teens at this age. You know, there, there's a there's an increase in impulsive behavior and in openness to uh, peer approval that is supposed to peak uh, 13, 14, 15 and start coming down. Um, and a, a recent study earlier this year in JAMA Pediatrics shows that it, instead of peaking and coming down, kids that are habitually checking their devices to see what's what's new, uh, to see who's responding to what they put out and their photos and their images, that trajectory just keeps going. And that those habitual social media checking behaviors are physically altering adolescent brains over time. They become well, hardwired. There's a brand new report from Pew Research Center that says that nearly one in five teens say that they are on YouTube or TikTok almost constantly. And <laughs> again, is this also a detract from academic performance? There have been moves recently in a number of school districts to try to ban social media or or smartphones from schools entirely so that you'd have to check in your your phone before you go into a classroom uh, do you think this is a, a move in the right direction absolutely it is yeah yeah i think we're, we're starting to see a trend you know this has been a banner year actually in january of 2023 the surgeon general came out warning finally against kids using social media under 16. You know, he he uh, he pushed it off. He said 13 is too early, and again, this was an arbitrary number that they had started off with. To, uh, you know, in, in 2000, uh, the National Review ran a cover story this summer. Keep them offline. You know, we have age restriction laws governing all kinds of things: driving, voting, getting into the military, smoking. Why would we treat social media any differently? And in fact, you know, the the uh, inventor of the endless scroll feature that we all seem to see in these platforms these days has has likened it to behavioral cocaine this is not something we can expect our young people to handle without problems you know but we are moving in the right direction and as you say some school districts even some towns i believe there was a town in ireland that whose parents got together and said look let's just not give our kids under 18 a a phone and let's let's try this and so there are are experiments being done right now um, that are that are giving kids a cell phone free, social media free environment. And they're watching what happens. And for the most part, these are positive results. I think the, uh, the Gab phone 
uh, there's a phone out there called the Gab phone, and they, they ran a study when they were commissioned by, by a school district, and they tried it, and the positive results are out. Okay, let's hear about those positive results. There's also a new move in China to limit teenagers' smartphone use to a maximum of two hours a day in a uh, bid to prevent uh, addiction to mobile devices. We will get to that and more coming back on The Medved Show with Andrew McDiarmid. Entertain your brain. It's awesome. Portions of the Michael Medved Show are brought to you in part by the Discovery Institute. And Andrew McDiarmid is a director of podcasting and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. And he has been doing a great deal of research and writing about the dangers of uh, smartphone usage and social media in general among uh, children. And just saying that uh, there is beginning to be more concern and more activity on the part of uh, parents and, uh, and, and also of the st- uh, local governments and school districts and more about trying to limit that usage. Uh, do you ever think we would come to the, to the level that China has come to? China is going to be limiting teenagers' smartphone use to a maximum of two hours a day and uh, authorities are cracking down on screen time in, in a bid to boost teen health. Uh, aside from China, <laughs> there's also the state of Utah. Why is the state of Utah particularly noteworthy on this issue, Andrew? Yeah, so um, they have a first-in-the-nation law that actually goes into effect next March, and it's designed to shield teens from addictive platforms. It is uh, the most sweeping legislation uh, in the United States so far, and I fully support it. I really think it's a, a great um, option. Uh, it's, it's, it shields kids in several ways. First, it requires parental consent for kids to access any social media platform, and that's on a case-by-case basis. So there's not a switch you can you know, be convinced to flip on, and that's the end of it. Uh, so express parental consent for kids between 13 and 17 for any social media platform. Uh, It also allows parents full access to social media accounts of their minor children so they can see what they're posting, uh, the the, the photos they're sharing, etc. And finally, it prohibits kids under 18 from using social media when they should be sleeping between the hours of 10.30 and 6.30 in the morning. Uh, So it really goes further than anything we've seen in the United States so far to, to say, look, this is an existential problem. You know, we're at the point of uh, no return and we need to take serious action. You know, there okay, are other how do you how do you how do you enforce something like a uh, a ban uh, during sleep time? Uh, you said between ten and six a.m. there would be a complete ban. How do you enforce that unless parents decide to support it themselves? Well, Michael, that's a good question. I haven't dug into every nut and bolt of that law. In fact, that's why they've given it a year before it uh, officially takes, um, you know, takes over. Uh, in fact, you can go to the Utah uh, website right now, the government website, the state website, and and see the uh, the ideas that they're proposing 
to manage this and to to uh, keep kids accountable and to help parents with this. Obviously, it's going to require new technologies put in place to to allow for these verifications and allow for this turn off at certain hours. Uh, but they're certainly working on it actively right now. What uh, uh, we've talked a little bit about what governments can do, what school officials can do. What about parents themselves? How would you recommend that parents begin doing a better job of protecting our children from some of the dangers of social media and smartphone use? Absolutely. Well, parents, you know, I would I would say to you, don't give your 13 to 17 year old a smartphone. I know the temptation is great, and I'm in the same boat here. I have three daughters. I also have a son. And, you know, don't feel like just because your life is getting busier and they're doing more activities that you have to uh, give in to a smartphone. There are alternatives. Uh, there's, a, there's something called a family loaner phone where you can get a phone that doesn't belong to the child, the teenager, but they can use it when they're out of the house. So they only get it when they're away from you and only to keep in touch with you. Uh, there are some alternatives hitting the market that I would uh, recommend as well. There's one called the Wise Phone and another called the Light Phone. And both of those do not allow apps to be downloaded. There's no internet browser. There's no social media to distract and make a mess of your time. Uh, it's just certain utilities plus phoning and texting and a good camera if that's something you want to, to use. So those are definitely good options um, that I would suggest. You, there's the good old flip phone, but even those have internet browsers and you can access certain things with that. Um, but the wise phone and the light phone are definitely good options these days, along with the family loaner model. Um, and when it comes to social media parents, just don't let your 13 to 17 year olds use social media. There is really not good enough reasons to introduce social media to kids under 18. There's nothing they truly need on those social media platforms that they can't get offline or elsewhere. Um, and just as a thought experiment, think for yourself. If all of social media went dark tomorrow, what would you miss? And how could we communicate and stay in touch? It's worth thinking about. Well, it it, it is. And it's it's one of those things where... Uh, in in religious homes, uh, and this is very much true in in the Jewish community, uh, one of the things that uh, is restricted is the consumption of media on the Sabbath or on uh, major holidays, and uh, that that idea that you can learn or discipline yourself for 25 hours a week for one period of time for the sabbath from friday evening until uh the next uh saturday night you just wouldn't go to tv or to your computer or to your smartphone or to any devices you'd actually talk to real people that's uh one of those things that i know that there are people who have adopted a more religious sabbath oriented uh, kind of a family schedule, uh, basically with uh, in mind all of the values that you're talking about. And speaking of which, there's a a big piece in the New York Times today uh, about the voters taking a look at uh, the Middle East and which side do they favor. 
And there's only one group, major group in America, and it's uh, people between the ages of 18 and 29 who favor the Hamas side of things. And they say in the Times, more stark than the partisan numbers in the is the generation gap, which reflects not only the experiences that people from different generations have had with the 75-year conflict between Israel's and Palestinians, but also their exposure to social media, especially TikTok, where brutal images of slain Palestinians bombard youthful eyes. Do you think uh, TikTok is a particularly intense problem? I do, Michael, and those are great points. Um, yeah, TikTok is just one short video after another, and it's usually folks that are in your face with these strong opinions and emotions, and that's hard to process, especially when there's no credits to roll and no quietness after it. No, the algorithm just feeds you the next one and the next one and the next one. And so we have this this stupendous idea that kids are are considering the uh, the letter to America that bin Laden wrote and, and considering the pro-Palestinian views and pro-Hamas views that their parents uh, otherwise wouldn't. Um, it's, I mean, the only thing worse than the addictive technologies that drive these social media platforms is the addictive technologies plus bad ideas. Um, you know, that, that's just recipe for disaster. And, uh, and, and the bottom line here is you've got to pull away, whether you're a teenager or you're an adult, you've got to have space between you and these platforms, between you and your smartphone. That is the only way to reflect on your own experience in life and to think about good ideas versus bad ideas. You've got to give yourself space, you know, and that's that's what uh, that's what these these ideas are are doing. You know, the the folks in Ireland who are who are trying this with no smartphones in schools, and and even in the United States, we're trying it. You know, you've got to give kids space to think and to be themselves and to connect with other human beings. Otherwise, we're we're in for it. In a bad last way. question, last question for you, uh, Andrew. You mentioned you have three daughters and a son. Uh, which which group of people, male or female, in your family is more drawn, pulled into the smartphone world? The boy or well, the three girls? Well, I would say, uh, you know, my my boy is, is 24 now. And so he <laughs> he made, we made a mistake of giving him a smartphone too early. And so he was drawn into that. Uh, to a much higher degree than my daughter's. My oldest daughter's 14. She has zero interest in social media. In fact, she rolls her eyes when she sees the teenagers around her who are staring at their phones and constantly taking pictures of themselves. She's got no interest. And that is when you know you're succeeding, you know. When you yeah, well, it, it sounds like she, she can be thankful for a, a great dad, which is a great thing to have uh, for anyone in this greatest nation on God's green earth. 